I know what's gonna happen. I'll try to go to bed with fear of failure flapping like a fruit bat in my head. I'll sleep for half an hour. The clock will ring at six. I'll wake up in the shower with a stomach full of bricks. So I won't have any breakfast, maybe just a little tea. Like when you have to go and get a colonoscopy, which incidentally isn't half as disconcerting or upsetting as going for a part you know there's no way that you're getting. But anyway, I'm heading downtown for the audition where everything I'm dreading will be coming to fruition. And here's what's gonna happen. I'll walk in weak with hunger and there's a dozen girls who look like me but ten years younger. I'll go into the bathroom and I'll try to vocalize. Then I'll be singing ding a ding a ding a ding a ding But I'll be hearing Sandy suck. She really sucks. She really, really, really blows. And she's old and she's lame. And then someone calls my name and here's what happens. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios. This week on Broadway for Sunday, November 24th. 2019, only 30 days to shopping. Mm. You know, it's, it's the end of the year already. Look at that mm. happening. Mm. Christmas, you know, what's it? 30 days to Christmas, 30 days to Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> 30 days to do Christmas shopping. So, uh, with us this morning, we have uh, Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at foulspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. And I want to throw in something here. I didn't tell Michael and Peter about this. I meant to tell you about this. (laughs) But we have to congratulate two of our listeners, Peter, don't we? Uh, <laughs> do we? <laughs> we do. Because I saw on Facebook that Doug Strassler and Alyssa Maher got engaged. Oh, did oh. they? Really? Yes. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Congratulations. All right. Yeah. That is great. I, Broadway's I cutest it. couple. And she said yes. <laughs> That's <So>. always good. <laughs> <laughs> that is very good. So yeah, congratulations. Do you remember the guy at the ballpark who brought the girl out there and uh, will you marry me on the scoreboard? Uh, and she oh, said, no. no. Yeah. Yeah. Really? So yeah, he figured she couldn't turn him down. If he took, if, if took her out to the ballpark in front of 50,000 people that she wouldn't dare say no, but she said, no. Wow. What a wipeout. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Well, you know, these things happen. <laughs> so it's, it's the, it's the excitement of live theater, you know? Yep, that's right. <laughs> that's right. It still applies, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It does. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia question? Yeah. Um, the question was, a few decades back, there was a show at a Broadway theater, the name of which rather describes the content of a show that's currently playing at that same exact theater. What's the show from long ago that describes the show playing right now at the same theater? And I was talking about the court where Darren Brown's Secret is playing. Uh, It could be termed a magic show, and the magic show indeed played the court in 1974. And by the way, to this day, it's still the theater's longest reigning tenant. So mm. Jed Slaughter was the first to get it, followed by Josh Israel and Sean Logan. Now, Corey Wong also guessed Darren Brown's Secret at the court, but what he chose as the affinity was a play called Sleight of Hand, a mystery that indeed played there. So he's right, too. Uh, And what about the ubiquitous Tony Janicki in all this? Well, he wrote from February 11th, 1985 through May 25th, 1985, the play Pack of Lies played the Royale. Hmm. 
this play's title is an appropriate description of the contents of the same theater's current tenant, Betrayal. Well, which nobody can deny, so we'll give uh, Tony credit as well. So uh, that's how it played out last week. Okay, great. So we will have the next question uh, later on in our broadcast. But first up, uh, Peter and Michael got over to see A Christmas Carol. So, uh, Peter, why don't you actually, Michael, why don't you get us started on this? Oh, I'd be happy to. This is one of the most enjoyable times I've spent in the theater in quite some time. Beautiful production from England, uh, old Vic production, directed by Matthew Warshus and uh, set in costume design. I have to mention right away by Rob Howell, lighting design, Yu Van Stone, sound design, Simon Baker. Uh, it is not a musical, but it's full of music. Uh, traditional Christmas carols. Uh, the, the show starts with a small uh, orchestra playing on stage, and then they go into the wings, and, and but they continue to play, I would say, almost throughout the show. There are not many sections where they are not playing. Uh, they play as underscore for much of the dialogue, in addition to the, uh, the copious Christmas carols that are, that are included throughout the narrative. So um, it may not technically be a musical, but if you would like to see a Christmas theme musical for, for the holidays, this I think is the show for you or certainly a show for you. Uh, one, one of the most interesting things about it is I think that uh, one of the reasons that people love a Christmas Carol so much is the long tradition of it dating back to the publication of the original story by Dickens. And uh, but this is, I would say, not a, a traditional production, quote unquote, you um, and therefore, since it isn't, you might think that it might displease a lot of people. But it's so well done and so creative uh, visually and in terms of the characterizations of the various actors and the whole milieu of it. I, I think that although you, while it's happening, you might um, notice that it's not traditional in some ways. I'm pretty certain that as it goes on, you will start loving it as much as I did and as much as the entire audience seemed to. Um, uh, just as an example of the non-traditional part of it, uh, Campbell Scott is quite wonderful as Scrooge, but I would say he only indicates a British accent. Um, and that is true of several of the other players. Uh, I would say actually quite few of them do full-on uh, credible British accents. One of One of them who does is Dashiell Eves in, as Bob Cratchit. I, I have not, I don't think I've seen him on stage in quite a bit. And he really was a wonderful Bob Cratchit. And he, as far as I know, he is American. So props to him for sounding so authentically British. I, uh, you know, I, I mean, I do think that's, that's also part of the appeal of A Christmas Carol because it is Dickens and um, it's so, so thoroughly British. So, uh, that that is something to to bear in mind that you're not necessarily going to get that but again the reinterpretations of the various characters uh 
the ghosts are, I would say, done all done quite differently than we've seen them in the past. Andrea Martin and Lachance are the other two um, who received basically star billing along with Campbell Scott. Andrea Martin is the ghost of Christmas past and Lachance is the ghost of Christmas present. Um, who else do I want to... Uh, there are two... Uh, young boys alternating in the role of Tiny Tim, Sebastian Ortiz and Yai Ram Srinivasan. <laughs> uh, and I saw the, the latter of the two, and they were both wonderful. Uh, Chris Hawk, uh, I was happy to see turn up as both Marley, the ghost of Marley, and also a role uh, in the role of Scrooge's father in the, in the flashbacks, mostly in the flashbacks. Uh, this is a role that... Um, I I'm, don't think it actually exists in the original uh, other than a reference, but here he is used, uh, that character is used as the backstory uh, sort of to show us uh, a large reason why Scrooge ended up being so bitter and miserly and such a horrible human being. Uh, there, there's a, it's a very, very intelligent and um, somewhat unusual adaptation by Jack Thorne. And again, as I say, uh, I think maybe there might be certain specific aspects of it that you won't like, but the totality of this production is just really wonderful and beautiful. And uh, there are many um, aspects of the production itself that are that are quite delightful. It snows during the show, but in a way uh, far more magical than any other stage snow I have ever seen. And I won't be more specific there because I don't want to put in a spoiler. And then there are other ways that the characters uh, interact with the audience. I, I won't say too much specifically there either, except to say that it involves uh, the delivery of food. <laughs> so I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Uh, I had heard incredibly good word of mouth and I was not disappointed and I would urge everyone to see it. Okay, Peter, what'd you think? Well, what I liked about it is that it wasn't business as usual. Mm. It, um, usually at this time of the year, we get three or four Christmas carols. We get a one person show, we get an update, we get a musical version we get, but they all um, basically stick to the same template, the exact story that Dickens had written way back when, but this one takes great liberties and it doesn't, it does it fearlessly. That's what's so wonderful about it. For example, uh, one of the three um, ghosts is actually a character in another sense. I don't mean doubling. I don't mean that at all. I mean, it's a character we've already seen and has been established. And that person later turns up as a ghost and says, you know, I'm that person from before. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, that's just one of the many things in that you say, wait, 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 this is not the Christmas Carol I know. And I think that's really great because uh, so many times it is business as usual. Uh, as somebody who, with, with the Star Ledger, went 23 years in a row to see a Christmas Carol at the Carter Theater, you know, I mean, it, it gets a little wearing. And um, while, well, of course, many people haven't had an experience like that, I would imagine that a, a great many people who are going to see a Christmas Carol anywhere this year have seen it before and are going to see business as usual. So seeing this variations on a theme, I thought was quite effective, quite effective indeed. And I like Campbell Scott quite a bit. And what was really nice about Andrea Martin um, is that she was really a team player here. I don't mean to imply that she isn't usually, but 
If you didn't know that this was a woman who had won two Tony Awards, you wouldn't know it from the type of performance she's giving in that she's not show offy at all. Mm. It's not like, look at me. I'm Andrea Martin. She is a member of the team. And that is what's so wonderful. She's terrific. Don't misunderstand me. But it's not a case where, hey, I've won two Tonys. Nobody else on stage has. As a result, I'm the big shot here. There's none of that. And it's really quite wonderful to see her doing her part. You know, the, it's it's split up beautifully among the, the company, almost like um, a pie or a pizza. Um, everybody gets an equal slice, it seems, in the ensemble. And, um, and that's where uh, Andrea Martin and LaShawn's mostly are. Mostly. Yeah, they do have moments where they do come out and um, they do their job extraordinarily well. But anyway, um, <laughs> if if you say, oh, my God, uh, oh, I, if I have to see another Christmas carol. No, this one will, will uh, intrigue you because Jack Thorne has made so many different decisions. It, it's truth to tell. It reminded me a great deal of To Kill a Mockingbird in mm. that it's a variation on a theme. And um, if you like the current To Kill a Mockingbird, and I certainly did, I've been twice, um, I think you'll like this Christmas Carol for the same reason, that it, it does not go by the book, but it makes its own book. I thought some of the changes were very much for the better and more interesting. Uh, this is the only version of Christmas Carol I think I've seen where we actually see people at the funeral for Scrooge mm -hmm. at the mm -hmm. funeral and speaking about him. I don't think I've seen that in any other version and I don't think it's in the book. There was one change that I thought was quite odd. Uh, Peter, tell me, you can tell me okay. what you, um, in this version, Fezziwig is an undertaker. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I don't think that's what he is in the original. No, no. Uh, I, I thought that seemed maybe a little odd and heavy handed. But uh, but ultimately, as Peter said, uh, it, it's so easy for it to get stale mm -hmm. when it's exactly the same thing that you're seeing over and over again. So even if there were some specific things that I thought were a little unusual and maybe not the best decision, it still has the effect of making you uh, attend the tale in a, in a new way than you ever have before. And that's very valuable, obviously. So that was uh, Christmas Carol. Do we think that it's going to become a, um, a yearly visit to us? Uh, I wouldn't, um, I guess theater availability and all that will, um, will certainly be a factor, but um, my guess is we're going to see it every now and then. Mm-hmm. I still, on a uh, you know, on a related note, I still hope that someday Patrick uh, Stewart. Stewart, I'm sorry, <laughs> there are so many Patricks. Yes, I would hope that Patrick Stewart would bring back his one man version because that his one was yeah. amazing. He, he, I, I, he it's is being done. Yeah, he is doing it. it oh, he's, he's being done as a, as a uh, benefit, though. It's a, I think it's two performances. Right, two nights. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh, in New York. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. December fourteenth uh, and fifteenth, I think I saw. Oh, wonder! I, I think yeah. I missed that. Wow, that's okay. great. It, it, it's funny because uh, uh, Ashley Steves and I talked about it. That there, there's so many Christmas carols that happen this time of year that we totally missed the Patrick Stewart one, and we talked about it on today on Broadway, but we uh, we totally missed it because of all all the other Christmas carol. Uh, various press releases that we all get mm. at this time at this time of the year. Well, at least you know about it, which I didn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
So uh, it's, uh, let's see, I have the Playbill article here from Patrick Stewart. Oh, because that is, if, if there's any way that people can get to that, that, that is just. Uh, it's a benefit for City Harvest in Ars Nova, hmm. uh, two performances, and I'll throw that uh, benefit tickets are $500 and up. Oh. All right. So uh, see if we can cater that one. For <laughs> <laughs> <Yes. laughs> sure, it's easy. It's easier to uh, buy a tux and go to these things than to uh, actually buy a ticket. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> all right. So that is our Christmas Carol roundups <laughs> for right there. Broadway Radio is being brought to you by listeners like you, patrons who support us at Patreon.com/slash Broadway Radio. That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Broadway Radio. When you support Broadway Radio, you will get the benefit of early access to our broadcast before anyone else. Financial support for Broadway Radio will help us continue to bring our broadcast to you through 2020 and beyond. Once again, that is P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Broadway Radio to become a supporter. Peter, you got over to Irish Rep to see Pump Girl. Uh, so tell us about Pump Girl. Well, um, it all depends if you like this type of play. And I have to say that I don't. And the type of play we're talking about is the monologue play. And what we have here is three people on stage. One talks while the other two don't. And it goes on like that. It's a two-act play. And there's never any interaction. Never any interaction whatsoever. And to me, um, that's kind of boring. So um, I, I wish I could be more enthusiastic about this and um, and say that um, it really intrigued me to the nth degree. But um, it just didn't because um, of that structure. And I guess, is Brian Friel the first one who did this? I don't know. Maybe he isn't um, the one that I should be castigating. But I remember Faith Healer. Um, and didn't he do Molly Sweeney too? I mean, that sounds right to me. And so under those circumstances, um, if he's the one to blame, then I will blame him. Um, and I, I just wish that these things didn't exist per se. Now, none of this is the problem of the three performers, all of whom are quite wonderful, quite wonderful indeed. And, um, one cannot, <laughs> begin to fault them for what they've been given. But, you know, I have a question here, and um, we'll see if this means anything to anybody. Um, I, I, I really have a question here, and I hope some of our readers can tell me what's going on here, because I don't, I, I just, the internet didn't help me on this. And that is the word shite. Okay. The word shite is used a great deal. Now, I always assumed that shite was an Irish euphemism, Irish being a Catholic country, and you know, people there um, not wanting to say profanity. I assumed it was a euphemism for shit, um, just the way people say, oh, fudge, um, when they mean a more severe, well, they used to say, oh, fudge. I mean, today I hear kids in the street not saying, oh, fudge. Uh, if anybody said, oh, fudge today, I guess people would say, oh, where? Is it chocolate? I mean, but anyway, um, so I assumed the shite was a euphemism. And if you're going to use a euphemism for that word, um, then why are you using the F word and the C word so plentifully? The C word is used much more than it's used in the Book of Mormon. And two of the characters are women, and women tend not to use that term, but or at least they didn't. Maybe they do in Ireland, or maybe they do nonstop now. But that seemed rather odd to me that 
there would be the euphemism uh, for shit, while um, there wouldn't be euphemisms for the F and C words. And of course, I have heard in so many Irish plays the word feck, and I've always assumed that was a euphemism, but you don't hear a feck here at all. So I thought that was um, odd. I have a friend who's um, a big fan of Irish things, and I called him up, and he said he thinks it's both. It's it's it started out as a euphemism, but it's really become so used that um, it uh, has really become the term now. I mean that it's interchangeable. So um, so we have that uh, issue to go with now. But you know. <laughs> I'm reminded of Robert Brustein. I don't know if you know that critic. He was a great critic. Um, it, when he reviewed The Ballad of the Sad Cafe by Edward Albee, uh, he took the playwright to task for using a narrator. And, uh, and I quote, he said, whose single function is to provide the information which the author is too lazy to dramatize. Okay. So, I mean, here's Abby Spallin. That's the playwright. Uh, if that's the case, she's public slacker number one because here she is having three narrators dispense the action, you know, and, you know, drama is conflict, and there's no conflict among these people that they actually interact. Certainly, there are things that go on in their lives which uh, involve a great deal of uh, interaction. Uh, one guy is a husband, and we see his wife, and she's not happy the way that he's been handling the marriage. And um, then there's the woman who's the pump girl. She um, has a little convenience store, and that's on the side of the stage. And, um, yeah, I, 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 Charlotte Moore, who runs the theater, must really like these shows because about four months ago, she did one called Little Gem in her upstairs theater. This is downstairs. And, yeah, same thing, three people. At least, at least in that one, there was a tiny smidgen of interaction, but there, um, there isn't one here. So... But again, you know, I really have to say that um, under the circumstances, all three actors, um, a woman named LaHoyes McGee, who plays Pump Girl, Hamish Allen Headley, who plays a guy named Hammy, and he's not Hammy at all, and Claire O'Malley as Sinead, um, really terrific, terrific uh, performers. And I would have liked to have seen them really be antagonists and protagonists and lock horns and um, they, they'd be great under those circumstances. So um, what, what, what's really kind of fun though is um, because it's a convenience store, there's the usual counter with candy and popcorn and all that kind of stuff. But what's also above this is one of those plastic dispenser of lottery tickets. And they're instant lottery tickets, you know, the type you scratch off. And um, I guess they bought them so that they'd um, really be um, <laughs> authentic. And I'd, I'd love to be at the closing night party, though after this review, they're not inviting me. Um, I'd love to be at the closing night party and see them scratch off the tickets and see that they've won millions of dollars. I think that would be wonderful for Irish rep. Um, <laughs> and they certainly deserve it because they've been in business for a long, long time. So anyway, um, you know, if, if you don't, if you like monologue plays, um, this is as good as they get. Um, but I do think it's very easy to drift off while somebody is um, just narrating to you. And if you miss a line here or there, it's hard to catch up. Um, Abby Spallin has won a lot of awards, won awards for this play, too. So obviously there are people who really love and respect what she does. Um, I think she might make a great novelist. I think she might get a lot of prizes doing that. Because with a novel, at least you have the time to go back. If you miss something, you know, let me let me go back a page. Oh, what was that line again? Um, and I think that really does help. But here you don't get that. So 
So uh, caveat emptor with Pump Girl. Okay, so that is Pump Girl over at Irish Shrimp in the smaller space, as uh, Peter had mentioned, and it is uh, playing through December 29th. This episode of This Week on Broadway is being brought to you by ShowTickets.com. ShowTickets is your go-to source for the best deals on Broadway and off-Broadway shows, New York City tours, and more. Right now, you can save over 40% on tickets to see Frozen, 35% on Oklahoma, 25% on Waitress. Plus, check out our blog for exclusive interview content for the stars and creators of Broadway's latest and greatest, as well as dining guides, itineraries, theater news, and more. ShowTickets.com has everything you need to make your next trip to New York City one to remember at prices you'll love. What are you waiting for? Check us out today. Showtickets.com. Michael, you got over to City Center to see Evita. So tell us about this uh, this Sammy Kenold production. Gladly. For some reason, I was not especially looking forward to this, and I just didn't feel like we needed to see Evita again necessarily. It hasn't been that long since the Broadway revival, although it's probably longer ago than I realize. Um, and I don't know, the uh, the original production, as was the case with uh, when they did Chorus Line at City Center a couple of years ago, uh, I think in both the cases of a Chorus Line and Evita, the original Broadway productions were so phenomenal and so definitive, I, I dare say, that uh, s- there's always a little trepidation when the shows are revived, not in those productions. But like that chorus line, I just thoroughly loved this Evita. Very, very different in terms of staging, uh, much more minimalist, I would say, than the epic making Hal Prince production, but beautifully directed by Sammy Kennold. And... In the lead, uh, we had actually two uh, women playing Evita, but young Ava was played uh, by Maya Refico. I'm sorry. uh, Let me make sure I get it right. Yeah, Maya Refico. only in the in the very beginning, the first uh, just the the very first moments of the show up through actually the first verse or two of Buenos Aires, and then to all intents and purposes, the role was taken over for the entire rest of the show by Soleil Pfeiffer, uh, except that um, Maria uh, Reficio would occasionally appear thereafter uh usually silently just walking across the stage as a reminiscence of ava as a young girl so i think that was all very creative um uh soleil pfeiffer is a very 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 different type from patty lapone or actually for that matter any other avida i've ever seen she's very tall very beautiful like model beautiful she has a gorgeous gorgeous voice uh, it was an absolute pleasure to hear her sing that phenomenal score with a full orchestra. Uh, it, it was I was in absolute heaven. I would say um, that her delivery of the text is not as pointed um, as Patti Lapone, and actually, even in terms of diction, which 
I, you know, what, what an ir- irony. For whatever reason, Patty Lapone, I think, has gained a reputation as not always having the best diction. But I think that she, uh, that's because, as I may have said before, sometimes um, she uh, does that, I think, on purpose for effect in certain musical moments of her roles. But if you listen to that original cast recording of Vivida, I think her diction is overall absolutely excellent and very, very pointed. And and the acting of the text is superb. So we didn't have qu- quite that level of acting and diction here. But as I said, on a musical level, it was thoroughly, thoroughly beautiful. The role of Che, played by J- Jason Gautier, who not that long ago was playing a kid because he was a kid in bring it on on Broadway. And now he's in this, this phenomenal role of Che. The interesting thing here is, as I'm sure many of our listeners know on the original cast on the original concept album of Evita that was recorded before it was ever produced on stage. uh, This is the recording that stars Julie Covington as Ava and uh, Colm Wilkinson then billed as C.T. Wilkinson as Che. Um, on that recording, if, if you um, recall the liner notes for it, Che was not supposed to necessarily be Che Guevara. Uh, he was conceived as a more of an everyman figure. And then uh, I believe what happened, if I understand correctly, is when it came time to put the show on stage, first in London and then on Broadway, that Hal Prince wanted to clarify it because he thought it was very unclear. So at that point, Che became Che Guevara. And uh, there's even a line, uh, he never actually says that, but there's a line that was added, a musical line towards the beginning uh, in Oh, What is Circus, where uh, Che sings, uh, and who am I who dares to keep his head held high while millions weep? Why the exception to the rule, opportunist, traitor, fool, or just a man who grew and saw from 17 to 24, his country bled, crucified, she's not the only one who's died. Uh, So that is supposed to be our indication that he is Che Guevara, who was in fact uh, aged 17 through 24 while the Perones were in power. Um, So in that sense, also, it, it makes perfect sense for uh, Jason Gautier, who still looks quite young, to be playing Che. Uh, I, I did think it was odd that he was costumed for this production in a, in a m- sort of modern-looking, very basic, just black shirt and black pants. Um, and it, it's not that I necessarily think he needed to look like Che Guevara with a beret and the, uh, you know, the khakis or whatever it was that... Uh, that Mandy Patinkin wore, but I, but it, it did seem a little jarring that he looked so far out of the action and like this modern figure. I, I'm sure that the director uh, did this intentionally, but I, 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 that was my, one of my minor quibbles with the production. Other than that, it was, it was really quite, something i actually wanted to go back and pay to see it a second time but and i didn't only because i i couldn't really find a slot that worked for me but i absolutely would have i i think that uh city center should be very proud of this production and i 
um, I'm, I think that anyone who saw it would have been extremely pleased with it. All right. So that is uh, Evita over at City Center. And unfortunately, I think the last, pro- the last performance is this afternoon on Sunday. Yeah. So right. uh, hopefully mm-hmm. you have gotten a chance to see it already. Um, Peter, you got over to 5090s59 to see Einstein's Dreams. Uh, so yeah, um, this is actually uh, based on a um, uh, a book uh, by Alan Lightman, and um, the married couple, uh, Joanne Sidney Lesnar and Joshua Rosenblum, decide to musicalize it. Now, of course, given that it deals with Einstein, a lot of us are intimidated right from the get-go, because after all, um, I don't think we'd be able to figure out E equals MC squared. That would be a little too tough for us. And um, and there are some times when you might get a little lost, and you might not. I will tell you very frankly that out of 526 kids taking physical science at Northeastern University, I finished 525th above a kid from the Philippine Islands for whom English was the second language. So I am really not swift where it comes to matters of um, science and math and all that kind of business. So um, so there were times when I got lost, but for the most part I didn't because a lot of it has to do with relationships. And that was a very smart thing that either Lightman or the Rosenblums did. I'm not sure which. But anyway, Albert Einstein does find himself involved with a woman named Josette magnificently played by Alexandra Silver, magnificently. So uh, Albert Einstein played quite well by Zal Owen and looking like a young Einstein. I mean, I know that uh, his looks were not irrelevant in his getting uh, cast. So um, it does um, deal with uh, all the struggles he had, convincing people that he was on the beam and on the ball and all that goes with that. The music is glorious beyond belief. Oh, the most beautiful music in the city, by far, by far. Can this guy write soaring, glorious melodies? I'm telling you, terrific. Um, he and uh, Joanne Sidney Lester collaborated on the lyrics, and they are spectacular as well. Um, you know I'm going to talk about rhymes. You know I'm going to talk about false accents. Boy, did they do their work there. These are people who are meticulous in doing it right. So, um, And, of course, we have the ever-so-talented Kara Reichel, um, who, of course, is um, one of the um, founders of the Prospect Theatre Company, and this is a Prospect Theatre Company production. She and her husband, Peter Mills, have done so many musicals, and she's done musicals without him, and he's done musicals without her. Um, This is one where she's done one without him. But they are so busy at all times, and they get so many shows on. It's just amazing to me how diligent this couple is, and she has directed beautifully. Now, this is in the same space, 5099, where recently she and Peter Mills did Hello Girls. And um, you can really see the Kara Reichel has a style, and it's a solid style. It, it's wonderful to watch. And, you know, if you miss the Hello Girls, of course, you're not going to quite understand what I'm talking about. But you don't have to see Hello Girls to really appreciate the staging in Einstein's dream, which is really quite wonderful. So um, don't be too scared off by uh you don't have to be an einstein to like einstein's dreams um because there's so much else there that doesn't deal with science that you'll be quite pleased and oh please somebody record this score record this magnificent score sooner rather than later okay 
That's great. So Einstein's dreams playing over at 59 East 59. Uh, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. It's got another couple of weeks left. It plays through December 14th. So, uh, Michael, you got over, uh, where was it? To Merkin Hall yes. to see Scott Siegel's uh, Broadway Unplugged. So tell us about Broadway Unplugged. It was a great evening, Monday, the November 18th. Uh, Scott used to do these at Town Hall as part of his Broadway series there. And uh, he still does shows at Town Hall, but I think that recently Broadway Unplugged has been at Merkin Hall, which is where I saw it. Uh, and it's, if anything, even better at Merkin Hall than at the Town Hall, because uh, Town Hall has very famous, wonderful acoustics, but it is, um, I always, always forget <laughs> the number of seats. It's uh, um, 1,500 or something like that. Uh, and uh the Merkin is maybe about a third of that. So it's this wonderful, intimate little space. And to hear all these great voices singing unamplified in that relatively very intimate, tiny space is just extraordinary. Um, creator, writer, and director of this series and, and this show is Scott Siegel, musical director Ross Patterson, musical staging Holly Cruz, and I'm going to read the uh, the whole program because it was uh, glorious. One Alone is a beautiful song from the Desert Song, sung by John Easterlin, who is uh, basically an opera singer but has appeared on Broadway in Phantom uh, as that that tenor. What is his name? Pianji. <laughs> uh, he has been in previous uh, Scott Siegel extravaganzas, and his voice is just thrilling. Uh, Clea Blackhurst, uh, for a change of pace from that, uh, was next up with I Got the Sun in the Morning from Annie Get Your Gun. Doug Ladner, beautiful, true bass baritone, singing They Call the Wind Mariah. Bill Darty did I Don't Want to Know from Dear World, which I'm not sure if I've necessarily heard a man do it before, but he did a beautiful job with it. Michael Winther, I think that's how he pronounces his name, W-I-N-T-H-E-R, Lonely House from Street Scene. Brian Charles Rooney, who I'm sure many of our listeners know, uh, did Love Changes Everything from Aspects of Love. Not one of my favorite scores, but great job with that. Cooper Groden on this night of a thousand stars from the aforementioned Evita. Ben Jones did Guido's song from Nine. William Michaels uh, saying, if I can't love her from Beauty and the Beast. And uh, we had a contrapuntal duet, You're Just in Love, uh, quad libit as Peter. <laughs> uh, it was subject of one of Peter's recent trivia quizzes. Uh, that was Bill Darty and Clea Blackhurst. Uh, love Can't Happen from Grand Hotel. This is, this is still, uh, we have a, about a month and a half left uh, of, to the 50th anniversary year of Grand Hotel. 30th anniversary, excuse me. Uh, and Michael Winther sang that. Uh, so uh, there was a Righteous Brothers song that Scott Siegel was very honest. He said, uh, he said Brian, Charles Rooney, and Doug Ladner are going to sing this Righteous Brothers song. It has absolutely nothing to do with Broadway. I just wanted to hear them sing it. So they did. And it was great. And the audience loved it. Uh, Fathers and Sons from Working, Cooper Groden. Uh, Maxine Linehan did Memory from Cats. 
just beautifully. What I did for love, um, uh, Scott brought back four of the youngsters, the younger people from his Broadway's Rising Stars show to sing that as a as a quartet with beautiful harmonies. John Easterlin came back to do um, She Wasn't You from On a Clear Day. Not one of the most famous songs from that show, but certainly one of the most beautiful. William Michaels did If We Only Have Love from, from Jacques Brel is Live and Well, The Living in Paris. Uh, Maxine Linehan and Ben Jones move on from Sunday in the Park. And Farrah Alvin ended the show with the music that makes me dance from Funny Girls. So it was just, it, it was really great that the song selections were wonderful and the matching of the performers to the to the individual songs was perfect and just to hear their voices ringing off the walls in that wonderful intimate theater was was a privilege it really was just extraordinary okay so that was um scott siegel's 18th annual broadway unplugged yes at yes. Merkin Hall, and it was a one-night-only thing. Uh, so you should get on Scott Siegel's mailing list to make sure that you're on, in touch with when he's going to do his next one. There are always tons of fun. So, uh, Peter, you got over to the Connolly Theater to see The Crucible. So tell us about uh, this production. Well, this is a production by Bedlam Theater, and um, they always uh, play fast and loose with what's going on. And uh, while this is... Arthur Miller's The Crucible, it's done in a very different style. They have a very distinctive style. A lot of running around, a lot of uh, tables and chairs piled on top of each other, that type of thing. And it's a very fine production. It's Bedlam. It's Bedlam, sure. I mean, it's Bedlam. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, it's um, Eric Tucker is the um, artistic director of this company, and he directed it. And um, wonderfully done. Now, this is at the Connolly Theater, and if you've been there, you um, certainly have sat in seats facing the proscenium stage, not this time. Now you will actually be on that stage, many people will, in risers, while um, the rest of the house, um, <laughs> which is simply a, a, a floor, uh, that's where it will play out. Um, very, very fine, very potent, and very uh, relevant to these times where there's a lot of talk about witch hunts, um, whether you're pro or con on that, you know, you certainly um, hear a lot about the word witch hunt these days. So I'm going to tell you one issue I have with this show, and that is um, the way people are identified in the program. Everybody is listed as ensemble. Now, that's lovely to think that this is a company where uh, we're all equal and everybody's the same and all that. But, um, you know, the Crucible uh, does have lead performers. And um, I have no idea who played John Proctor, but he was quite fine. But really extraordinary was the woman who played Elizabeth Proctor. Extraordinary. Probably the best performance I've seen an actress give this season. So I felt bad that um, I didn't know who she was. So I did some Googling and investigating, and I'm pretty sure that she's Susanna Malonzi. And also, by doing the research, I found out that if she is uh, Susanna Malonzi, she is Eric Tucker's wife. Well, um, he chose very well. Uh, this is not a case of nepotism, because she is sensational in showing the agony of being Mrs. John Proctor, a guy who just gets himself deeper and deeper and could could get himself out of a very difficult situation 
if he'd only play ball with the authorities, but he's not going to do it. Now, of course, the play was written in the time during the McCarthy hearings, the House Un-American Activities Committees and all that. And that's what Arthur Miller was really getting at. But um, I'm afraid there's a lot of the more things um, <laughs> change, the more they stay the same. We're in a very different set of circumstances now involving uh, people giving testimony. But still, there are enough parallels to say, hmm, hmm, that is uh, what's going on now. Frankly, another play that's doing that right now is A Bright Room Called Day. Uh, at the Public Theater in a very fine production um, with um, wonderful actors like Michael Esper, whom we've, we've always loved, um, really doing a terrific job. Um, and uh, I'll, I'm taking a detour here to just mention that this one takes place in the era of Nazi Germany, with the Nazis coming to power. And wow, there's so many parallels with today as well. So um, I'll interrupt my crucible endorsement to give an endorsement to a bright room called day two. A lot of people have shied away from it because it's three hours. Didn't seem it to me. I looked at my watch at the end and it was, but it didn't seem it to me. So, and the crucible also is more than three hours and that didn't seem it to me either. So um, Susanna Milanzi, I if it's you, Congratulations. If it's someone else that I don't know from the program, um, let that be your consolation. But um, I, it, well, <laughs> when somebody has that bigger role, you know, I, I think you identify that person. It's not just ensemble. Well, everybody else, I mean, even Melanzi, for that matter, if it is she, uh, plays um, uh, Betty in the first scene, the one who's catatonic in bed, um, who doesn't say very much of anything. Um, so she does double technically, but I mean, uh, that's such a, um, a a minor role that I wouldn't even consider that doubling because uh, for the rest of the show, she's Elizabeth Proctor. And um, she alone is worth seeing, but this is a terrific production of The Crucible. Okay. Uh, so Crucible is uh, playing through December 29th. Uh, get down to the Connolly Theater to check that out. We'll have a link to that in the show notes so you can find it pretty easily. Michael, you got over to Staten Island to see Pride and Prejudice. So tell us about Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, I just wanted to mention it because, believe it or not, this was the first time I've ever experienced Pride and Prejudice in any form. I've never seen the movie and never seen a stage version. So I wanted to see it uh, for that reason alone, aside from everything else. This is the adaptation by Helen Jerome, adapted from the novel by Jane Austen. And I know all of the people involved here, so the full disclosure in that first. But it was a quite a fine production by Ghost, excuse me, Ghost Light Productions, directed by Charles Sullivan. And uh, I wanted to call attention to two performances specifically. Uh, the central role of Elizabeth Bennett was played by Anna Glenn Sparks, really very, very well. Uh, and to my ears, a, a wonderful, very credible accent british accent not necessarily something that that all of the others had but she did and so uh did mr darcy played by craig wasnicki uh and they were aside from their accents their their characterizations were fully fleshed out and very credible those are two very rich roles uh for anyone who's seen this piece in any form will attest to that i'm sure uh and they they really brought a lot to it um this production was also enhanced by uh, some period dancing that was added to it uh because it can seem quite talky 
without that. But there was just enough dancing in it to provide just delightful little interludes between, uh, you know, the conversations. And so I was very, very happy to see it. I was glad that they gave me this opportunity to experience something that I've never seen before. And I guess maybe at some point I'll catch up with the movie <laughs> and see what that's all about. All right. So uh, also you, we were talking before we started and you um, pointed out that there was some strange choices made in uh, advertisements for upcoming Broadway shows or existing Broadway shows. So you want to expound upon that a little further? Yeah. Well, I always assume that people who do that, you know, for a living know much more than I do. And so if something seems odd to me or wrong to me, I usually give them the benefit of the doubt and think they must they must know you know what they're doing and I don't. But there are three examples recently that just seem so odd to me that I think maybe I'm right and they're wrong. One of them is <laughs> one of them is this uh, ad campaign for West Side Story which several aspects of the campaign are very strange but one is this pull quote that they keep using calling the show the anthem of New York City. Now, this is a quote from uh, a journalist. So uh, I want to just, you know, full disclosure, they didn't make it up. It wasn't some ad copy person who came up with that. Uh, But the fact that it was a journalist who said it, I don't think that makes it correct. Uh, I mean, I, I looked up anthem and the definition of it is a rousing or uplifting song identified with a particular group, body, or cause. Now, I really don't think that that phrase applies to the totality of West Side Story. First of all, in terms of the tone of it, rousing and uplifting. Well, maybe um, Ivo Van Hover has changed it so much that it is a happy <laughs> ending. I kind of suspect that if <laughs> that he has changed it greatly, but in the opposite direction, if anything. And in fact, we know that he's cut uh, one of the few uptunes in the show because uh, we've already read that. So I don't think that's it. But thank you for giving him the benefit of the tap. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other thing is, of course, anthem. Uh, the word anthem refers to a specific song. So how you could say a whole show that has 12 songs in it is the anthem of New York City. Uh, you know, a whole show with 12 songs in it that's about racism and gun violence and tragedy. I, I, I don't know why they use that quote, and I think it's very, very strange. Uh, Similarly, now I have not seen The Inheritance yet. Actually, I'm going today. Uh, I have a double header, and I'm looking forward to it very much. But they have a pull quote from another journalist referring to the show as a love letter to New York City. Now, Peter, um, would would you say that there's any way in which that's accurate for The Inheritance? Gee, I can't see how. Um, for one thing, so much of it deals with uh, um, a, a setting that takes place upstate. Uh, but um, I don't know about a love letter. Um, no, I, I, I don't see that at all, Michael. I'm on your side. Well, yeah, and again, uh, maybe I'll change my, my mind, mind, but, mind I yeah. but I don't think so because I've read what I, I, you know, I haven't seen it, but I've read what the show is about. Um, and there again, I, I, you know, and I guess the the use of both of these quotes is um, in an attempt to get the tourist market mm. because they think anything that stresses New York uh, is what is going to pull them in, but. 
if it's inaccurate, I, I don't think, you know, I think that it that it's has the counterproductive effect. So I don't get that at all. And the last um, weird ad content thing that I wanted to mention, which is now a moot point because the show is announced that it's closing, is the Tootsie, the recent Tootsie TV commercials, which incredibly existed of nothing but clips, brief clips of people, obviously actors, just laughing, just laughing, going from a clip of, you know, a woman laughing to a man laughing to two women laughing, no words whatsoever, no spoken words, no testimonials about the show, no attempt to uh, uh, pretend that these are people who saw the show and are, and are talking about it. Uh, it, it I, I guess the theory here was that laughter is contagious, but I don't think it's contagious when it's completely out of context. And when people are just laughing and you don't even know what they're laughing about. Uh, are they sitting in theater seats? No, no. They're standing against like a white background. And it's, it's a, wow. you know, total studio creation. And they're obviously actors. And I, you know, so I, I, I do not know. I think it was, unfortunately, one more nail in the coffin of a show that, uh, despite its flaws, I think gave a great deal of pleasure to many people who saw I it. I, I know I a lot of people who absolutely loved it, mm -hmm. myself included, despite the, mm -hmm. the quibbles and the flaws. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that, unfortunately, this has been terribly mishandled from a producing and a uh, marketing aspect. And I think that's very unfortunate. All right. So uh, that is really interesting. I'm going to have to look up that Tootsie TV commercial because I haven't seen it. Uh, and I'd like to... Uh, figure out maybe if there's some sort of abstract thing that uh, that I missed or something like that. Yeah, let me know. I yeah. mean, I, I think I've described it quite accurately, so you'll you'll see. Yeah, and if you're a listener and you have uh, uh, words to weigh in here about West Side Please. or Inheritance or this Tootsie TV commercial, let us know. Yes. All right. So uh, that wraps it up for this morning. Before we get on to trivia. The question of trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. Uh, there's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to find a podcast, you're going to be able to listen to Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, what is the question for trivia this week? When this musical premiered in the late 80s, its opening number included one Italian word. Perhaps people didn't understand it, for in the early part of this new century, when the same number was used as the second song in a completely different musical, an English word was used instead. Although that English word, didn't mean the same thing as the original Italian word. <laughs> What's the song? What's the word? What's the two shows? All right. If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. As soon as the smoke from the funeral clears, we're all gonna see it and how she did nothing for years. Don't